2010, 26 states passed voter suppression laws. Those states included 54% of all African-American voters. And every one of those states that passed voter suppression laws also denied health care, have high poverty states, have denied wages, and have some of the worst density of labor unions and labor rights. So voting rights is not just a black issue. When you suppress the vote, you open up the possibility for people to get elected through the process of racialized voter suppression, who once they get elected, they then pass policies that hurt mostly poor whites. This week on the Janice Adams Show, Voter Suppression. Our guests, the co-producers of the year's most critical documentary, Capturing the Flag. How the big idea of American democracy can be defended by small acts of individual citizens. Today on the Janice Adams Show, we're calling it as we see it in this silly season, as it is called, the weeks preceding Election Day. Silly as campaign season 2018 is, there's nothing funny about it. In one week, when a gunman previously barred from carrying a firearm due to domestic violence was thwarted in his attempt to enter a black church, he consoled himself by walking into a Louisville, Kentucky Kroger's grocery store and randomly murdering two African-American people. When an armed bystander intervened, the bystander was chided by the shooter. Whites don't kill whites, he said. When 15 explosive devices were mailed to people with the temerity to criticize President Trump, endangering the lives in the process of countless postal workers and security personnel, their political persuasions unknown and immaterial. When a Pittsburgh hater enters the Tree of Life synagogue, massacres 11 people, among them worshippers at a baby naming ceremony, and wounds six more? When the man responsible for carrying, quote, the weight of the world as President of the United States wedges in an irresponsible wink-wink, nod-nod to bigotry and hatred with this statement? Under Republican leadership, America is winning again. America is respected again because we are putting America first. We're taking care of ourselves for a change, folks. Thank you. But radical Democrats want to turn back the clock. Power-hungry globalists. You know what a globalist is, right? You know what a globalist is. A globalist is a person that wants the globe to do well, frankly, not caring about our country so much. And you know what? We can't have that. You know, they have a word. It sort of became old-fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. Nationalist. Nothing else. Use that word. Use that word. Nationalist. I'm a nationalist, the president boasts, acknowledging the word's taint as old-fashioned, you're not supposed to use that word, he preens. I'm a nationalist? In the same week, two white nationalists wreak havoc nationwide? And what is a nationalist? Two years ago, in the immediate aftermath of the Trump win, NPR's Kelly McEvers interviewed one of the architects of the so-called alt-right, white nationalist activist Richard Spencer, Here's an excerpt. The new chief strategist for President-elect Donald Trump once said a website he used to run, Breitbart News, is a platform for the so-called alt-right. We're about to hear more about that movement from the man who says he came up with the term alt-right. His name is Richard Spencer, and in 2008 he began arguing there should be an alternative to George W. Bush-era Republicans and conservatives. Richard Spencer now runs a small think tank that pushes alt-right ideas, 
To be clear, the alt-right movement is also a white nationalist movement that's associated with racism, misogyny, and anti-Semitism. What the alt-right wants, Spencer says, is an awakening of identity politics, meaning white identity politics. The alt-right used to exist mostly on the Internet, but with the rise of Donald Trump and his chief strategist, Steve Bannon, the movement is starting to hold conferences where hundreds of people attend. Spencer and others in the alt-right movement were suspended from Twitter this week. But now that Trump has been elected, Spencer says he believes the alt-right will continue to grow. This is the first time we've really entered the mainstream, and we're not going away. I mean, this is just the beginning, and I'm very excited. Just a warning here. There are words and phrases and ideas in the next seven minutes that many people will find offensive, even hateful. But because this group has influence, we think you should hear what the alt-right is and what it wants from a Trump administration. So I asked Spencer that, and he said his end goal is a white ethnostate sometime in the future. What I would ultimately want is this ideal of a safe space, effectively, for Europeans um, this is a, a big empire that would accept all Europeans. It would be a place for Germans, it would be a place for Slavs, it would be a place for Celts, it would be a place for, for white Americans, and so on. For something like that to happen, and, and really for Europeans to survive and thrive in this very difficult century that we're going to be experiencing, we have to have a sense of consciousness. We're going to have to have that sense of identity. Going forward, should only white European people be considered U.S. citizens? Well, the, no. I mean, the citizenship of the United States, like this is not something that can be changed uh, right away. So, I mean, what I'm saying is that Europeans defined America. They defined what it is. I care about us more. That's all I'm saying. But I respect identitarians of other races. But you also believe that, the, that people of different races inherently do not get along. Isn't that right? Uh, I think world history believes that. Um, I don't see very many counterexamples. So you ride the subway in New York City, and you're sitting in a subway car, and you're looking at, pe at people from all over everywhere, mm -hmm. and nobody's punching each other, nobody's stabbing anyone, everyone's going about their life, going to work. You know, you don't see that as like a way where people are getting along. Do we really like each other? Do we really love each other? Do we really have a sense of community in that subway car? Richard Spencer's views are obviously not easy to hear, but we do think they're important to hear because of the link between the alt-right and Donald Trump's team. I asked Richard Spencer what policies he's pushing for. Natural conservation, he said, a foreign policy that's friendlier to Russia, and this. Immigration is the most obvious one. And I think we need to get beyond thinking about immigration just in terms of illegal immigration. Uh, illegal immigration is not nearly as damaging as legal immigration. Legal immigration, they're here to stay, their children are here, and so on. And I think a really reasonable and, and I think palatable uh, policy proposal would be for Donald Trump to say, look, We've had immigration in the past. It's brought some fragmentation. It's brought division. But we need to become a people again. And for us to do that, we're going to need to take a break from mass immigration. And we're going to need to preference people who are going to fit in, who are more like us. That is, that is European immigration. The president proclaims as recently as last week, I'm a nationalist. Yes, it's been quite a week, and the president isn't the only one tooting racist dog whistles. The trick bag of tactics being used by far too many Republicans, including the president's own anti-immigrant attack ad, are full of smears, half-truths, misquotes, and racist code words. Thief, rapper, outsider, this for black candidates. Disturbingly radical not one of our own. His policy on health care is a welfare bailout. And as if this weren't enough, Republican state legislatures north and south, east and west, have passed blatantly racist voter ID laws. In Georgia, where an African-American woman is running for governor, we have the exact name match. In other words, Blacks who have names that may not be typical for whites, if one letter is off, they're 
registration is thrown out. Right now, with the black population being approximately 30% in Georgia, almost 70% of those registrations discarded have been of black voters. In North Dakota, where Native Americans live on reservations, exact match laws for blacks have been replaced with street ID laws for Native Americans known not to have street addresses on their reservation. And so here we come to the most noxious tool of all in this trickster playbook, voter suppression. That's our topic today on The Janice Adams Show what it is, how it is done, its repercussions, and what, with precedent as our guide, we can expect if this year's tactics succeed in returning America to the good old days of blatant, virulent, violent white supremacy, post-slavery days of segregation, that 70-year reign of terror known as the era of Jim Crow. But what's so wrong with having voter ID laws, with being accurate with our voter rolls, and why are Democrats fighting it so hard? Because such requirements are the slippery slope of the good old days of excluding voters on the basis of race. A civil rights activist beaten and left for dead by sheriff's deputies as a young man Here's Congressman John Lewis commemorating the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington in 2013. Come and walk in my shoes. Come walk in the shoes of those who were attacked by police dogs, fire hoses, and nightsticks, arrested and taken to jail. I first came to Washington in the same year that President Barack Obama was born to participate in the Freedom Ride. In 1961, black and white people could not be seated together on a Greyhound bus. So we decided to take an integrated ride from here to New Orleans. But we never made it there. Over 400 of us were arrested and jailed in Mississippi during the Freedom Ride. A bus was set on fire in Anderson, Alabama. We were beaten and arrested and jailed, but we helped bring an end to segregation in public transportation. I came back here again in June of 1963 as the new chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. We met with President Kennedy. In 1963, we could not register to vote simple because of the color of our skin. We had to pay a poll tax, pass a so-called literacy test, count the number of bubbles in a bar of soap, or the number of jelly beans in a jar. Hundreds and thousands of people were arrested and jailed throughout the South for trying to participate in the democratic process. Mega Everest had been killed in Mississippi, and that's why we told President Kennedy we intended to march on Washington. So often we look at civil rights history, American history, and we think of it as a steady climb. It was not. And indeed, this story from 1872 tells the tale. During his tenure as the first African-American governor, PBS Pinchback didn't leave much of a record because he didn't have much time to be governor. Only 35 days from December 9, 1872 to January 13, 1873. In the rollicking era of Reconstruction, it was probably safest for him not to try to hold his seat as white politicians struck terror into Southern whites with threats of black domination as one by one every black elected official was removed from office by fraud, terror, or political maneuvering. Such was the case with Pinchback.
As a prominent publisher of the New Orleans Louisianan, his journalistic platform provided him a degree of visibility. In 1871, he was elected president pro tempore of the state senate. When the lieutenant governor died, by constitutional order of succession, Pinchback filled the post. And when the governor was suspended under threat of impeachment a year later, Pinchback became acting governor. While he had support for his candidacy, it was considered, quote, best that he make a deal to withdraw gracefully. His opponent would be named and Pinchback would be appointed to a six-year term in the U.S. Senate instead. Within a short time, even this arrangement was contested and Pinchback was denied the promised Senate seat. America's politics don't get to be America's politics by being fair and honest. The fact is that in 200 plus years of American history, only a dozen blacks have been elected to statewide office and one Barack Obama elected president. In these tremulous days when the nation stands at a crossroads, the intersection of integration and resegregation, black life belongs to a class apart. Black life is not real life. Here at the bridge, the teeter-totter of American history and race relations can definitely be seen as teetering. Twice before, America has come upon this moral precipice, and twice before, at the same relative moment, two centuries in a row, it has plummeted over the edge. In 1793, the Fugitive Slave Law and the Constitution's degradation of blacks as three-fifths a man belied revolutionary ideals and betrayed black patriots who had cast their lot with colonists, hoping to free their entire families from bondage. This, despite the guarantee of individual liberty, had they sided with the British. And not until the 1860s, with emancipation, the Civil War, and Reconstruction, did free-born African Americans, along with those enslaved, attain a semblance of human rights. Faced with a majority black electorate in many states, like the majority-minority state debates of our day, 19th-century legislators and demagogues demonized and dehumanized blacks until every black elected official was expelled from office, as this era's redistricting is designed to do in the next decade. Then the Supreme Court institutionalized the Black Codes and Jim Crow segregation with its Plessy versus Ferguson decision of 1896. Not until the Voting Rights Act of 1965 were African-American rights of citizenship restored. Hardly again, America had merely stopped subverting the constitutional amendments passed a century before. In 1968, with voting rights assured, African Americans finally began returning to elected office in significant numbers. Twenty years later, another 90s downturn had begun. What course would the nation choose this time around? Indeed, the push again began to uproot civil rights gains. What threw it off course? honestly, was the internet. And the internet and the independence of voice is what led to the election of President Barack Obama. But the internet also has a downside. It has a negative side of conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists. And so I am not optimistic about these current trends. But this I know even in the worst of times, the slavery years, black minds were stayed on freedom. Faced with the depravity of those who opposed human rights in the American civil rights era, blacks have kept our eyes on the prize and held on. Looking at this situation, the 
question is, but what can we do about it? Well, we have with us today guests who are co-producers of this year's most critical documentary. It's called Capturing the Flag, how the big idea of American democracy can be defended by small acts of individual citizens. We'll be back after the break. We're back here on The Janice Adams Show talking about voter suppression with the co-producers of one of this year's most important documentaries. It's called Capturing the Flag, the story of a group of attorneys who travel the country to help right the intended wrongs of voter suppression. And with us are Laverne Berry, activist attorney, and Anne DeMare, the director. Laverne, let's start with you. Unfortunately, you could not have picked a better time for this film to come out than this particular time when voter suppression isn't just a matter of our historic record. It seems to be coming back with a vengeance as part of our contemporary affair. What was the light bulb moment for you that said that this was the work you needed to do? Well, I didn't start out to do work on voter suppression, actually. I started out now maybe 14 years ago thinking I could spend a little time helping to get people to the polls so they could vote. So I really started out um, driving people to the polls and helping them get to the polls. And I was thinking of it as really uh, my civic duty to volunteer to help people. It was only after in 2008 that I decided I could do a little bit more than just help people. I could actually go and volunteer and stand outside of polls and help people um, interpret what was going on that I found that what was going on was, in some cases, a systematic attempt to keep people from voting. So I didn't start with this kind of lofty goal to end voter suppression. I just started with the idea of helping people vote. And as I did more and saw more and the times changed more, I knew that there was more work that we needed to do because it was very scary and the whole concept of our democracy built on people being able to freely vote was being challenged. Whenever I hear the word our democracy or the phrase our democracy, it in a way sometimes it sounds a little lofty and i'm an african american woman i'm a historian yes but i'm an african american woman and the idea of our democracy is kind of new to me <laughs> <laughs> given the history that i have lived through along with a whole lot of other people so when we speak to of this democracy what are we really talking about here? I mean, I'm an African-American woman, too. And so I grew up in um, the era of certainly minorities not being able to freely vote. Um, I, I witnessed that. Um, I had people that were fighting against that in the 60s. Um, and I think that um, many people think that over the course of our history, we have been moving some bumpily, but um, steadily towards uh, a time when more and more people would have the right to vote, our democracy would be more open, more freer, um, transparent, all of those things. And it is 
disheartening and shocking at how um, untrue that that idea of just forward mo- motion is. Mm-hmm. So um, I get to cl- to claim the idea of uh, our democracy because I'm here. I'm an American. I want all things that are due to me. Um, and I'm not going to um, abdicate that idea because of the past. I'm going to fight for that idea into the future. Exactly. And as a filmmaker, what was your light bulb moment that made you think about either the subject first or the fact that you were aware of the subject, but now you knew that this was a film you wanted to do? I came to the piece really out of a frustration and dismay with the conversations that were happening before the 2016 presidential election, both because of the darkness of it, the divisiveness of it, the sense of... um, that America that I always that I always hoped was there, that I grew up thinking was we were on our way to, as Laverne said, was really um, in danger, but also out of a desire to to talk about what it felt like to be a citizen at that moment. I mean, our our news media and our public discourse has been so focused top down. Um, we talk about what's happening and the leadership at the very highest levels, but we don't really talk about local politics or the role of the citizen in our political structure. So my, my interest in it as a filmmaker came from that space. Um, and that was the reason why we decided to follow Laverne and her friends, Steve and Claire and Trista in North Carolina was because we wanted to make a piece about civic engagement and what it felt like to participate in democracy. The voting rights piece of it became apparent as for me as a filmmaker, as we were filming, that this battle was way deeper and way more complicated and way more insidious than I had originally thought it was. Every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. There is no moral issue. We're the United States of America. One man, one vote. If that's our definition of democracy, and then we don't give the one man the vote, big fat lie. What happens in North Carolina is going to be very important for what happens in the whole country. This is the test ground for voter rights. The NAACP claims the State Board of Elections and three county boards are removing thousands of people from voter rolls illegally. I feel a little bit like I'm stepping off a cliff. People on the ground are already reporting suppression of the vote. Our legislature decided to pass some voter restrictions that significantly altered voting in North Carolina. We knew it was being challenged in court. So how do we even prepare for election day not knowing what laws are going to be in effect? I'm hoping that we will merely be observing people carrying out their democratic rights in a peaceful way. I am a lawyer, and I've been assigned to answer questions. This woman was just telling us she got in right at the beginning, and they kept her in there for 45 minutes. Said it was a complete mess. Excuse me, ma'am. Did everything go okay? Were you able to vote? They sent me from 105 over here. Now I got to go over there. Me and two other black guys are the only guys that the DMV forgot to process. They sent me here. Now these people here tell me I cannot vote here. It's not here. This is not fair. Nobody would fight this hard to take something from us that wasn't powerful. When you deny a person the right to vote, then you take away every other constitutional right that they might have. People are aware that there's a problem. I don't believe people are aware of the extent of the problem. The history of our country is a history of struggle for the right to have a voice. Each one of us has some valuable asset that we can use to fight these fights that need to be fought now. 
We better use what's in our hands. The heart and soul of America is at stake. So as the filmmaker, as the storyteller among us, take us to how you saw, number one, the main characters of this film and the interplay, the drama of those characters that was unfolding. Well, you know, it's interesting because in many ways, I had never made a film that was so connected to current events or politics before. And so my storytelling basis has always been on character-driven films. And with this film, I had these friends who were a very diverse group of friends. We have Laverne, who is obviously an African-American attorney. Her friend Steve, who she's done this work with, is a gay white man whose parents survived the Holocaust. And their friend Claire, who they head down with, is an immigrant from South Africa who had been active in the anti-apartheid movement and been a lawyer in South Africa um, when their new constitution came underway. And so, you know, it it was an interesting group of people. Uh, I was curious about the casting, as it were. You know, it was a sort of wonderfully diverse and unusual group of people to see working together um, in that way. And so that was where I began, was through their friendship. Um, And ultimately, I think the film is a film about their friendship and also a film um, about their individual and collective love for the ideals of democracy. The layering in of the characters, forgive me, Laverne, for, (laughs) (laughs) for putting it that way for the moment, but the layering in of the characters in this extraordinary real life buddy movie couldn't be any better, really. And I was particularly touched by a scene really early in the film when Steve and Laverne are together and then about to part and they are discussing where she is going to be going and where he's going to be going and they embrace and the phrase is, got your back. And then they come together over that idea that they're in this together, and even though they are going in separate directions for the cause at that moment, that they have each other's back. How did you essentially, therefore, decide how the film was going to proceed? I mean, we see them from the very beginning on a train. So I even love that in terms of this conversation about our imagery in this conversation on our democracy being so top-down rather than bottom-up. I I think, obviously, lawyers um, and filmmakers are not quite bottom-up, but it is grassroots. It is on-the-ground reportage in in the best sense that you're doing. To just respond to that piece of it, I, I think that I very much see my job as a storyteller as that of witness. So that, you know, there are people who will set out to make a film, a thesis film, where they have a point they want to make and they go and they shoot to prove that point. Um, with, with our film, our film is much more about witnessing what, what these characters experience, what these people experience, and also what the voters experience that they encounter. And what is that interplay between people who are working to help support the democracy and people who are trying to participate in it and where are the tensions and where are the places that we succeed and we fail at that. I think it's really difficult because voting ultimately is a very private thing. People have very personal emotions about not only the political choices that they make, but about that experience. It's something that we do. You you go to the polls and you go into, you know, I still, I'm young enough to remember going into the booth with my mother and having her pull the curtain behind me and it feeling sort of secretive and, Mm -hmm. and, and, um, you know, so, so I think that that's where the tension was for me with them as individuals is sort of how do we, how do we bear witness to their story and learn from it and learn about more than just them through it, learn about ourselves. I just would like to augment that a little bit because not only is it a private act, it's an act that 
those of us who were working um, outside the polling places wanted to be able to protect. So our greatest need and desire was to be able to protect the people voting and not to be able to make a film. Um, I know that that wasn't easy for Anne, but to the extent that voters were going to feel uncomfortable in that atmosphere, our first duty was to protect them. You know, the the word that Anne used was witness. I, I'm just thinking about it now from your point of view, Laverne. This witness that you have taken on, witness as activism or activism as witness, why North Carolina? Well, that's kind of interesting. You know, all of us that went to this little group were from New York. And we wanted to have an experience where we were sure that we would have things to do. So we did a little bit of research about the recent voting difficulties in various states around the United States. And we sort of took into account how much time we could take off of our jobs, how expensive it might be to get there, how much the work was needed, and how much potential suppression there might be. And taking all of those things into account, we came up with North Carolina. As it turned out, there were um, court challenges based on a purging of voters that were just playing out the month before Election Day um, in 2016. And while we were there on the ground, we were still waiting for the courts to decide um, about these purged voters. And the decision came down the Friday before Election Day. Um, that Let's start back a bit. What were the stakes in North Carolina? And why were those stakes important enough to you to galvanize you? And what did it mean for this larger conversation? But, but let's start right there with North Carolina. What actually happened? What was the suit? And what did you witness? Well, the states in North Carolina, unlike some states, including New York State, there was a time when North Carolina's voting laws were looked at by some as being relatively progressive. They have same-day registration and early voting. They actually have early voting. So everyone doesn't have to vote on one day. And over the last Um, two decades, really, um, there have been certain kinds of restrictions that have been placed on the voting laws in North Carolina. And those restrictions became even tighter after 2013, um, when there was a Supreme Court case that actually um, reversed part of a federal mandate that states like North Carolina, when they were going to change their voting laws, had to get certain federal approval. In 2013, that went away and new restrictions came in. And the outcome of those restrictions affected minorities and poor people more than other groups. And so we knew that uh, once we started to do this research. And so it made sense to us that given what we could do and how we could learn the law, 
to go to North Carolina and try to do the work there. We'll be back with our guests, Laverne Berry and Ann DeMayer, after the break. We're back here on The Janice Adams Show talking about voter suppression with our guests, Laverne Berry, activist attorney, and Anne DeMayer, the director of Capturing the Flag. The period of time in which North Carolina was considered progressive, did that essentially go up until about 2008? It went up to 2008, but really got a blow after 2013. Okay, let's be honest then, or not honest, but let's be open then. Essentially then, I asked, obviously, that pivotal question about 2008, because that's the election of Barack Obama. And to many, this voter suppression is really payback for the election of Obama. And so, to some extent, many people seem to feel as though it would retain its progressive bent. But when he was not the one-term president that Mitch McConnell had promised his base, that's when it seems as though we begin to get a lot of this pushback. Is that what was being experienced in North Carolina? That certainly is a part of the story. I mean, there's no question that the pushback intensified. Obama got a second term. But what sometimes people fail to take on board is that elections are things that take place under state rule, um, under state law. and um, You mean state as opposed to federal? As opposed to federal. Okay. It's the state election board. It's the state legislature that go forward and make the laws. And although 2012 was a very big year in terms of Republican wins on the state level. It's not that everything happened in 2012. This is a long game. Mm-hmm. The fact that he was elected in the first place cannot be discounted. Correct. So, yes, North Carolina uh, during the 2000s. Um, had more and more kinds of laws that made it harder for people to be able to vote. But it is something that has been happening both there and in other states mm-hmm. throughout the U.S. for the better part of two decades. So that's the political landscape. And from someone who is interested and involved in it. And I'm not going to say you were not interested and involved, but I am going to ask you in in this context, do you remember how you felt with the election of Obama and what you felt was coming because of that election? I was in a bar in the East Village with friends and we were through the moon. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really felt like you know, as Laverne said, I have a very different perspective. I'm a, I'm a white woman. I was born in 1967. So I have, I didn't live through uh, the civil rights movement. I was the generation that grew up in a world where those battles had been fought. And I really did feel like we were moving towards a more inclusive, more progressive, more just, less racist society. And I think that the election of Barack Obama was this huge feeling of hope, like maybe we finally made it to a certain extent, or we've taken another big step in that direction. And I think the thing that's been so terrifying about the politics that have come about in the last couple of years is this profound feeling like, God, was I wrong? You know? Um, And so for me, I've always had an interest in social justice. Most of the films that I've made have been about 
one issue or another connected to social justice. I was very involved in the anti-war movement before we went into Iraq. And I, I've always had a, a, a sense of political consciousness, but, but I haven't, I was not prepared for what I would learn in making this movie and then what I would learn just as a citizen being alive in the world and seeing how fragile ideas about, you know, the democracy is much more fragile than I ever thought it was. So from that youth, from that growing up, from that position of belief and in faith that things were moving in a certain direction and moving forward, what did it feel like for you to be in North Carolina witnessing and then documenting what you saw? It was heartbreaking. In a way, I was so happy to have the film to be making because it gave me a focus for my energy. And I think the whole crew felt that way, that we were all really surprised by a lot of what we found. We were also heartened. I mean, the film, I think the film is ultimately inspiring in the actions of the the volunteers and also in the quiet civilization of individuals helping each other and individuals asking for help, which is very difficult to do sometimes. So, you know, it was a very complicated landscape for all of us. Um, And I think it remains complicated for the bigger us, you know, the citizenship of the country. I think it's a very complicated time. And there's lots of conflicting emotions. And, you know, right now there's there's so much talk. There's so much more activism. You know, we were at a screening last night of the film and one of the organizations that organizes lawyers to do this kind of work, We the Action, was there with us. Uh, someone was there and she said they have record numbers of attorneys that have volunteered to do this work for the midterms. They have 5,000 attorneys, which they've never had. So it, that's a positive thing. That feels like, okay, we've, we're waking up to what needs to be done and we're rising to the occasion and we're doing it. The flip side is that it can feel so big. And like, there's so much that needs to be fixed and that we're in a bit of a mess here. Um, so it's not one thing, you know, it's, it's, it's several different emotions at once. I would ask each of you, what is your favorite scene in the movie? Laverne? Um, I think for me, the three scenes, they're very short, when each of us walk off in the dark to our polling place on election day because we are having that solitary space that we're going to be able to do something and off we go by ourselves to try and do it. Yeah, I love that scene too. I love those scenes. Um, I love the scene at the end of the night the end of election night when we're back at the hotel we were all so exhausted at the end of that night and we're watching the results come in and and we see their reactions i love it because we've experienced all day long an infinite amount of patience and generosity and a real sort of nonpartisan desire to help your fellow voters. And we've witnessed people really putting the process of democracy ahead of everything else. And then we get back in private and we understand that they have very powerful political convictions that they had stepped away from during the day or put aside in order to do the work. And and I think that that is the heart of democracy to value and protect every single voice. And I think it really comes clear in that scene you know, as a filmmaker, I feel like they they let me closer than they think they ever expected to that night. And there's a, I have a real fondness for that scene because of that. Um, the cameras really finally fell away for them. Um, and we're really with them in a very emotional moment. What is it that you would want us to do next? Something. I mean, that, that's the big thing, right, is that when you're faced with a task that you can't see how to finish, sometimes the biggest thing is to begin. So 
you know, I think that the the response for me is I would love for people to be more involved in the process of voting, whatever that means. If that means that you don't usually vote and you vote, then that's terrific. If that means that you usually vote, but you're gonna bring your uncle to go vote with you, or you're gonna go talk to your neighbor, or you're gonna go drive a couple of people who can't drive themselves, or you're gonna volunteer to do the kind of work that Steve and Laverne do, or you're gonna sign up to be paid to work inside the, the polls and go take those classes and do that work, like just to be involved and to realize that the system only works when we all participate in it. And that participation, we need to rise to that occasion. And so that's what I hope for. We can make our voices heard louder than we do right now. And we do that by participating and bringing our faith to the system. Laverne, do something, do it with conviction, And even if you get pushed back, do it again. On Tuesday, we must all vote. I know I will vote because I'm one of the thousands who had our heads bashed in for the right to do so. I'm voting against the bait and switch of bigotry and intolerance as wedge issues in a sinister, cynical power play. As an American, I know I deserve better. We all do. Today on the Janice Adams Show, special thanks to our guests Laverne Berry and Anne DeMere, to Reverend Dr. William J. Barber for his quotes, for the music of Mavis Staples, and to you for joining us today. For more about today's show and links to that NPR interview, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, Jason Dole, our engineer, thanks for joining us today. I'm Janice Adams. <laughs>